Section 38, Part 6 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. General Observations on the Fall of the Roman Empire in the West. The Greeks, after their country had been reduced into a province, imputed the triumphs of Rome not to the merit, but to the fortune of the Republic. The inconstant goddess, who so blindly distributes and resumes her favors, had now consented, such was the language of envious flattery, to resign her wings, to descend from her globe, and to fix her firm and immutable throne on the banks of the Tiber. A wiser Greek, who has composed with the philosophic spirit the memorable history of his own times, deprived his countrymen of this vain and delusive comfort by opening to their view the deep foundations of the greatness of Rome. The fidelity of the citizens to each other and to the state was confirmed by the habits of education and the prejudices of religion. Honor, as well as virtue, was the principle of the Republic. The ambitious citizens labored to deserve the solemn glories of the triumph, and the ardor of the Roman youth was kindled into the active emulation as often as they beheld the domestic images of their ancestors. The temperate struggles of the patricians and plebeians had finally established the firm and equal balance of the constitution, which united the freedom of popular assemblies with the authority and wisdom of a senate, and the executive powers of a regal magistrate. When the consul displayed the standard of the republic, each citizen bound himself, by the obligation of an oath, to draw his sword in the cause of his country, till he had discharged the sacred duty by a military service of ten years. This wise institution continually poured into the field the rising generations of freemen and soldiers, and their numbers were reinforced by the warlike and populous states of Italy, who, after a brave resistance, had yielded to the valor and embraced the alliance of the Romans. The sage historian, who excited the virtue of the younger Scipio, and beheld the ruin of Carthage, has accurately described their military systems, their levies, arms, exercises, subordination, marches, encampments, and the invincible legion, superior and active strength to the Macedonian phalanx of Philip and Alexander. From these institutions of peace and war, Polybius has deduced the spirit and success of a people incapable of fear and impatient of repose. The ambitious design of conquest, which might have been defeated by the seasonable conspiracy of mankind, was attempted and achieved and the perpetual violation of justice was maintained by the political virtues of prudence and courage. The arms of the Republic, sometimes vanquished in battle, always victorious in war, advanced with rapid steps to the Euphrates, the Danube, the Rhine, and the ocean. And the images of gold or silver or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. The rise of a city which swelled into an empire, may deserve, as a singular prodigy, the reflection of a philosophic mind. But the decline of Rome was the natural and inevitable effect of immoderate greatness. Prosperity ripened the principle of decay. The causes of destruction multiplied with the extent of conquest. And as soon as time or accident had removed the artificial supports, the stupendous fabric yielded to the pressure of its own weight. The story of its ruin is simple and obvious, and instead of inquiring why the Roman Empire was destroyed, we should rather be surprised that it had subsisted so long. 
the victorious legions who, in distant wars, acquired the vices of strangers and mercenaries, first oppressed the freedom of the Republic, and afterwards violated the majesty of the purple. The emperors, anxious for their personal safety and the public peace, were reduced to the base expedient of corrupting the discipline which rendered them alike formidable to their sovereign and to the enemy. The rigor of the military government was relaxed, and finally dissolved by the partial institutions of Constantine, and the Roman world was overwhelmed by a deluge of barbarians. The decay of Rome has frequently been ascribed to the translation of the seat of empire, but this history has already shown that the powers of the government were divided rather than removed. The throne of Constantinople was erected in the east, while the west was still possessed by a series of emperors who held their residence in Italy and claimed their equal inheritance of the legions and provinces. This dangerous novelty impaired the strength and fermented the vices of a double reign. The institutions of an oppressive and arbitrary system were multiplied, and a vain emulation of luxury, not of merit, was introduced and supported between the degenerate successors of Theodosius. Extreme distress, which unites the virtue of a free people, embitters the factions of a declining monarchy. The hostile favorites of Arcadius and Honorius betrayed the Republic to its common enemies, and the Byzantine court beheld with indifference, perhaps with pleasure, the disgrace of Rome, the misfortunes of Italy, and the loss of the West. Under the succeeding reigns, the alliance of the two empires was restored, but the aid of the Oriental Romans was tardy, doubtful, and ineffectual and the national schisms of the Greeks and Latins was enlarged by the perpetual difference of language and manners, of interests, and even of religion. Yet the salutary event approved in some measure the judgment of Constantine. During a long period of decay, his impregnable city repelled the victorious armies of barbarians, protected the wealth of Asia, and commanded, both in peace and war, the important straits which connect the Euxine and Mediterranean seas. The foundation of Constantinople more essentially contributed to the preservation of the East than to the ruin of the West. As the happiness of a future life is the great object of religion, we may hear without surprise or scandal that the introduction, or at least the abuse of Christianity, had some influence on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The clergy successfully preached the doctrines of patience and pusillanimity. The active virtues of society was discouraged, and the last remnants of military spirit were buried in the cloister. A large portion of public and private wealth was consecrated to the specious demands of charity and devotion, and the soldier's pay was lavished on the useless multitude of both sexes, who could only plead the merits of abstinence and chastity. Faith, zeal, curiosity, and the more earthly passions of malice and ambition kindled the flame of theological discord and the church, and even the state, were distracted by religious factions, whose conflicts were sometimes bloody and always implacable. The attention of the emperors was diverted from camps to synods, and the Roman world was oppressed by a new species of tyranny, and the persecuted sects became the secret enemies of their country. Yet party spirit, however pernicious or absurd, is a principle of union as well as of dissension. The bishops from 1800 pulpits inculcated the duty of passive obedience to a lawful and orthodox sovereign. Their frequent assemblies and perpetual correspondence maintained the communion of distant churches, and the benevolent temper of the gospel was strengthened 
though confined, by the spiritual alliance of the Catholics. The sacred indolence of the monks was devoutly embraced by a servile and effeminate age. But if superstition had not afforded a decent retreat, the same vices would have tempted the unworthy Romans to desert, from baser motives, the standard of the Republic. Religious precepts are easily obeyed which indulge and sanctify the natural inclinations of their votaries. But the pure and genuine influence of Christianity may be traced to its beneficial, though imperfect, effects on the barbarian proselytes of the North. If the decline of the Roman Empire was hastened by the conversion of Constantine, his victorious religion broke the violence of the fall, and mollified the ferocious temper of the conquerors. This awful revolution may be usefully applied to the instruction of the present age. It is the duty of a patriot to prefer and promote the exclusive interest and glory of his native country. But a philosopher may be permitted to enlarge his views, and to consider Europe as one great republic, whose various inhabitants have attained almost the same level of politeness and cultivation. The balance of power will continue to fluctuate, and the prosperity of our own or the neighboring kingdoms may be alternately exalted or depressed. But these partial events cannot essentially injure our general state of happiness. The system of arts and laws and manners, which so advantageously distinguish above the rest of mankind the Europeans and their colonies. The savage nations of the globe are the common enemies of civilized society, and we may inquire with anxious curiosity whether Europe is still threatened with a repetition of those calamities which formerly oppressed the arms and institutions of Rome. Perhaps the same reflections will illustrate the fall of the mighty empire and explain the probable causes of our actual security. 1. The Romans were ignorant of the extent of their danger and the numbers of their enemies. Beyond the Rhine and Danube, the northern countries of Europe and Asia were filled with innumerable tribes of hunters and shepherds, poor, voracious, and turbulent, bold in arms, and impatient to ravish the fruits of industry. The barbarian world was agitated by the rapid impulse of war, and the peace of Gaul or Italy was shaken by the distant revolutions of China. The Huns, who fled before a victorious enemy, directed their march towards the west, and the torrent was swelled by the gradual accession of captives and allies. The flying tribes who yielded to the Huns assumed in their turn the spirit of conquest. The endless column of barbarians pressed on the Roman Empire with accumulated weight, and, if the foremost were destroyed, the vacant space was instantly replenished by new assailants. Such formidable emigrations no longer issue from the north, and the long repose, which has been imputed to the decrease of population, is the happy consequence of the progress of arts and agriculture. Instead of some rude villages, thinly scattered among its woods and morasses, Germany now produces a list of 2,300 walled towns. The Christian kingdoms of Denmark, Sweden, and Poland have been successively established, and the Hansa merchants, with the Teutonic Knights, have extended their colonies along the coast of the Baltic as far as the Gulf of Finland. From the Gulf of Finland to the Eastern Ocean, Russia now assumes the form of a powerful and civilized empire. The plow, the loom, and the forge are introduced on the banks of the Volga, the Obi, and the Lena, and the fiercest of the Tartar hordes have been taught to tremble and obey. The reign of independent barbarians is now contracted to a narrow span, and the remnant of Kalmuks or Uzbeks, whose forces may almost be numbered, cannot seriously excite the apprehensions of the great republic of Europe. 
Yet this apparent security should not tempt us to forget that new enemies and unknown dangers may possibly arise from some obscure people, scarcely visible on the map of the world. The Arabs, or Saracens, who spread their conquests from India to Spain, had languished in poverty and contempt till Mohammed breathed into those savage bodies the spirit of enthusiasm. 2. The Empire of Rome was firmly established by the singular and perfect coalition of its members. The subject nations, resigning the hope and even the wish of independence, embraced the character of Roman citizens, and the provinces of the West were reluctantly torn by the barbarians from the bosom of their mother country. Yet this union was purchased by the loss of national freedom and military spirit, and the servile provinces, destitute of life and motion, expected their safety from the mercenary troops and governors who were directed by the orders of a distant court. The happiness of an hundreds millions depended on the personal merit of one or two men, perhaps children, whose minds were corrupted by education, luxury, and despotic power. The deepest wounds were inflicted on the empire during the minorities of the sons and grandsons of Theodosius, and after those incapable princes seemed to obtain the age of manhood, they abandoned the church to the bishops, the state to the eunuchs, and the provinces to the barbarians. Europe is now divided into twelve powerful, though unequal, kingdoms, three respectable commonwealths, and a variety of smaller, though independent states. The chances of royal and ministerial talents are multiplied, at least with the number of its rulers, and a Julian, or a Semiramis, may reign in the north, while Arcadius and Honorius again slumber on the thrones of the south. The abuses of tyranny are restrained by the mutual influence of fear and shame, Republics have acquired order and stability. Monarchies have imbibed the principles of freedom, or at least of moderation. And some sense of honor and justice is introduced into the most defective constitutions by the general manners of the times. In peace, the progress of knowledge and industry is accelerated by the emulation of so many active rivals. In war, the European forces are exercised by temperate and undecisive conquests. If a savage conqueror should issue from the deserts of Tartary, he must repeatedly vanquish the robust peasants of Russia, the numerous armies of Germany, the gallant nobles of France, the intrepid freedmen of Britain, who, perhaps, might confederate for their common defense. Should the victorious barbarians carry slavery and desolation as far as the Atlantic Ocean, ten thousand vessels would transport beyond their pursuit the remnants of civilized society and Europe would revive and flourish in the American world, which is already filled with her colonies and institutions. 3. Cold, poverty, and a life of danger and fatigue fortify the strength and courage of barbarians. In every age they have oppressed the polite and peaceful nations of China, India, and Persia, who neglected, and still neglect, to counterbalance these natural powers by the resources of military art. The warlike states of antiquity, Greece, Macedonia, and Rome, educated a race of soldiers, exercised their bodies, disciplined their courage, multiplied their forces by regular evolutions, and converted the iron which they possessed into strong and serviceable weapons. But this superiority insensibly declined with their laws and manners, and the feeble policy of Constantine and his successors armed and instructed for the ruin of the empire, the rude valor of the barbarian mercenaries. The military art has been changed by the invention of gunpowder, 
which enables man to command the two most powerful agents of nature, air and fire. Mathematics, chemistry, mechanics, architecture have been applied to the service of war, and the adverse parties oppose to each other the most elaborate modes of attack and of defense. Historians may indignantly observe that the preparations of a siege would found and maintain a flourishing colony, yet we cannot be displeased that the subversion of a city should be a work of cost and difficulty, or that an industrious people should be protected by those arts which survive and supply the decay of military virtue. Cannon and fortifications now form an impregnable barrier against the Tartar horse, and Europe is secure from any future eruption of barbarians, since, before they can conquer, they must cease to be barbarians. Their gradual advances in the science of war would always be accompanied, as we may learn from the example of Russia, with a proportionable improvement in the arts of peace and civil policy, and they themselves must deserve a place among the polished nations whom they subdue. Should these speculations be found doubtful or fallacious, there still remains a more humble source of comfort and hope. The discovery of ancient and modern navigators, and the domestic history or tradition of the most enlightened nations, represent the human savage, naked both in mind and body, and destitute of laws, of arts, of ideas, and almost of language. From this abject condition, perhaps the primitive and universal state of man, he has gradually arisen to command the animals, to fertilize the earth, to traverse the ocean, and to measure the heavens. His progress in the improvement and exercise of his mental and corporal faculties have been irregular and various, infinitely slow in the beginning, and increasing by degrees with redoubled velocity. Ages of laborious ascent have been followed by a moment of rapid downfall, and the several climates of the globe have felt the vicissitudes of light and darkness. Yet the experience of four thousand years should enlarge our hopes and diminish our apprehensions. We cannot determine to what height the human species may aspire in their advances towards perfection, but it may safely be presumed that no people, unless the face of nature is changed, will relapse into their original barbarism. The improvements of society may be viewed under a threefold aspect. 1. The poet, or philosopher, illustrates his age and country by the efforts of a single mind. But these superior powers of reason or fancy are rare and spontaneous productions, and the genius of Homer, or Cicero, or Newton, would excite less admiration if they could be created by the will of a prince, or the lessons of a preceptor. 2. The benefits of law and policy, of trade and manufactures, of arts and sciences, are more solid and permanent, and many individuals may be qualified by education and discipline to promote, in their respective stations, the interests of the community. But this general order is the effect of skill and labor, and the complex machinery may be decayed by time or injured by violence. 3. Fortunately for mankind, the more useful, or at least more necessary arts, can be performed without superior talents or national subordination. Without the powers of one, or the union of many, each village, each family, each individual, must always possess both ability and inclination to perpetuate the use of fire and of metals, the propagation and service of domestic animals, the methods of hunting and fishing, the rudiments of navigation, the imperfect cultivation of corn or other nutritive grain, and the simple practice of the mechanic trades. Private genius and public industry may be extirpated, 
but these hardy plants survive the tempest, and strike an everlasting root into the most unfavorable soil. The splendid days of Augustus and Trajan were eclipsed by a cloud of ignorance, and the barbarians subverted the laws and palaces of Rome. But the scythe, the invention or emblem of Saturn, still continued annually to mow the harvest of Italy, and the human feasts of the Lystragons have never been renewed on the coast of Campania. Since the first discovery of the arts, war, commerce, and religious zeal have diffused among the savages of the old and new world these inestimable gifts. They have been successfully propagated, and they can never be lost. We may therefore acquiesce in the pleasing conclusion that every age of the world has increased, and still increases, the real wealth, the happiness, the knowledge, and perhaps the virtue of the human race. End of chapter 38 And the end of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3